really what we're about is uh, being God's people, walking with the Lord, and experiencing uh, His presence as we worship. An important part of that, among other important parts, is being before His Word. And so we are in a series in Romans. We'll be in chapter 16, so you can open up your Bible uh, to chapter 16. We'll start in verse 1 and following finish up soon this series in Romans, one more message in the series, and then we'll take a, oh, thank you Jason, we'll take a, uh, a uh, little bit of time for a series on the church, and then Advent actually will follow from that, and then we, we're uh, planning to be in Genesis, starting with the new year, but we're finishing Romans, this wonderful book. Let me ask you a question, have you ever thought of how so many things are much more meaningful when you share them with others? There's lots of things you can look, uh, look at. I know there was a group that enjoyed some Princess Bride stuff last night, and I'm sure it was a lot more fun to be together, enjoy that. I think of uh, football, for example, uh, as something like this. What would it be like if you were the only fan, in the world maybe even, of football? How would it change? Uh, what would it be like to... to to think that, you know, yeah, the team still got together, they were the fans, they enjoyed it, but, but really no one ever kind, kind of went to watch football. You were the only one. What would it be like? How would that change things? Now, that may seem far-fetched, but I do think there are pastimes that are like that. There's not really fans, right? People don't go to stamp-collecting tournaments. Maybe they do. I don't know. Uh, uh, they, they, you know, you don't have stadiums filled with people to look at rock collections or... Um, you, don't, you, know, you don't listen to sports radio and hear them rave about the latest solitaire champion, right? So there's, there's activities like that. So just imagine that's the case for football. How would it change your experience to be the only fan? Um, I think it would be radically different. Um, and, and I know uh, what makes it fun, really, uh, is the fact that we, if you're a football fan, you enjoy it together with others. Um, there's nothing like being at a stadium and hearing the roar of the crowd at that big play. And actually, when I watch it, I like to watch with other people. I prefer not to watch a football game alone. The more, the better. And not only that, but I like to turn on the Dolby sound so I hear the crowd noise like behind me. Um, so I kind of feel like I'm there. It makes a difference. Uh, it makes it enjoyable. Why? Because things are much more meaningful when you share them with others. Well, today we're going to see that Paul's gospel is not his personal hobby. It's not his thing that he does by himself. We're going to meet many others who, are been, who have been caught up in participation in the wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to meet these people. We're going to see what their relationship is like. And I trust that as we look at this, that you will see that we are not alone in the gospel. We are not alone. So let's pray and then we'll read God's word. Lord, we thank you for the wonder of the gospel. And of course, even if we were the only person who came to understand and live in the gospel before you, it would be fantastic. But Lord, this good news of yours is changing lives, has been changing lives throughout the globe and throughout time. And there are many, many, really a countless number ultimately, who will be affected by this good news. And I pray today, would you encourage us in this reality, we're not alone. Your gospel is working amongst us and throughout the globe, and we have much to enjoy and celebrate together. Lord, bless the reading and hearing of your word. 
Help me to teach well. And Lord, draw our attention to you ultimately through this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says to his friends in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kencria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphina and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church, to, uh, sorry, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. God's word from Romans 1, 16, 1 through 24. There are three things I want to look at in this overall theme that we are not alone. I want to talk about gospel friends. I want to talk about gospel foes. And then I want to talk about gospel victory, just going right through the passage, more or less. So Paul starts out in verse 1, uh, starting to talk about his friends. And there's a long list of his friends in the church in Rome. Um, this first friend actually is not from the Roman church. She is likely the person who is delivering this letter that we're reading. Um, that is Phoebe. He mentions her uh, as our sister. He commends her and calls her uh, our sister. Uh, this alone is an important thing, a noteworthy thing, um, to be called a brother or sister in the Lord uh, is a special title. Uh, it's from the reality that we are in a family together through Christ, the wonder uh, that the good news of Christ has 
so influenced us, changed our lives, changed our identity, that in Christ, through faith in Christ, belonging to Christ through faith alone, because of his death and resurrection for us to uh, forgive our sins and to give us new life, we are included in the family of God. And so this title, brother or sister, is not just a nice thing to say. We, we use it in our culture. We call people these things, perhaps. Uh, particularly, bro is a, is a word we use a lot. But the biblical use of it means more than just a nice title for someone else. It's indicating our relationship, uh, that we are family, that we are dear to one another. So Paul introduces Phoebe as our sister with all that meaning. This is a term of endearment in Scripture, not to be taken lightly, not to be taken for granted among God's people. So Phoebe is a sister. She's also a servant of the church at Kencrea, it says. Uh, it's interesting just to, to think about that term, a servant of the church in Kencrea. Uh, that's what the ESV says. The word is the word for deacon. Uh, it's the same word for deacon that we see elsewhere in Scripture. And I would submit that a better translation is a deaconess of the church at Kencrea. Why do I say that? Well, the... It's an official title, I think, from what we see. It's uh, when she's called a servant of the Church of Cancria, that's a title, and it's an office. Uh, and the office of deaconess, I think, is best. The word itself also is the same word for deacon. And yes, it can mean servant generally, or minister. That's what the word simply means. Uh, but it's also an office in Scripture. Scripture teaches us about this office of elder, and of deacon. Those are the two offices in, in the church. Those are the two positions of leadership in a church. Um, an elder uh, is also a pastor. Um, that, that's part of the term as well. They're synonymous in scripture. Um, elder, pastor, uh, overseer are all the same thing. And that is an office in the church that is responsible to oversee the church, to lead the church, and to do that primarily through the teaching uh, of the Word in prayer and helping people understand and follow the Word. That's the, the overall role. But a, a deacon or deaconess is somebody who comes alongside an, an elder um, and helps accomplish the ministry of the church. So a deacon, deaconess is really a ministry leader uh, in the church. That, that's scripturally how we see it. And so Phoebe is, is this, from what we can tell, um, just by the official use, the language, uh, the use of the word, and what we see in Scripture. Um, the office of a deacon, we understand as an office for either a man or a woman. We would understand, according to Scripture, that an elder is reserved for a man, according to God's design, going way back to Genesis chapter 1, how God has designed things. But, but a deacon uh, is an office for a man or a woman. There's a slight difference in how they would serve in that, but, but we see that in Scripture. We see it here with Phoebe in in Romans 16, right at the beginning. Uh, we can look to 1 Timothy 3, and I think it's important for, to think through this and for us as a church, uh, how we understand and practice these things. We'll, we're going to talk about this a little bit, uh, by the way, at the family meeting. Um, but take a look with me, at, just briefly, at 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8-13. I read from the NAS version, because their translation, I think, is more helpful. It speaks of deacons. It says, deacons likewise... Uh, it's been speaking of elders, so then it says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid game, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. So it said, Deacons must be men, and it describes this, and then it says, literally, women must likewise be dignified, 
not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then it goes back to deacons must be husbands of, uh, of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Uh, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what's going on in the middle of that passage where it says women? And some would say, well, it should be translated wives, and that was in the time the word for women and wives is the same word. Uh, so yes, you, you could say that, but, but what I would say, what we would say is why is Paul talking about wives there? Because he actually never says that for elders. He, it would make a lot of sense if he was going to require something for the wives of the officers of the church, that of course he would say something about the elders' wives. That's a more prominent and influential office, but he doesn't. So why would he choose to say it about deacons? So I would understand in line with Romans 16, where Phoebe is called a deacon, literally, and it's, it's the, that word actually is, is the form of the word that is usually translated as the masculine form for a woman. So I think it's speaking of the office. Um, it just makes sense in light of that, that, that the women here is speaking of female deacons. And that's how we understand it. Uh, so this is an office in the church, deaconess. It's defined by Scripture right there in 1 Timothy 3, slightly different than the uh, particulars of a male deacon, according to God's design uh, in gender. And we can talk more about that. I don't have time right now to get into it. If you have questions, please ask. Uh, that's how we roll as a church, by the way. We want to follow the Word, and we want to help you understand and follow the Word as, as you uh, learn about it. So we would love to have questions. If you have afterwards, I can talk to you about that. But we understand it this way, in line with our passage today in line with 1 Timothy 3, and we value this role. The other aspect I think that's really important to acknowledge, not only what we see in the word here explicitly about deaconesses, but just look at this long list of fellow workers that are women that Paul speaks of. There needs to be a, a, an understanding of what that role is, and we would understand that role is fitting best under deaconess. So we learn that Phoebe is a deaconess, and she's from this church in Cancria, Cancria is the port of Corinth, so she's from the church in uh, Corinth. Um, and Paul wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth, and then went on his way, actually, to go to Jerusalem, as we talked about last week. He went to Jerusalem, and he, and he sent Phoebe to go to Rome to deliver this letter. And Paul values this woman and her work very highly. He asked the Roman church to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So she's arriving, and, and they're getting this letter, and he says, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. That's noteworthy in and of itself. They are to welcome her. It's not, the word welcome means more than just, like, be nice. Please be nice to her. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying, take her in. That's what the word means. Take her in as one of your own. Treat her as family. Welcome her. Bring her into the life of the church. Regard her as your sister. Welcome her in the Lord, in a way worthy of the saints. The, the church is to practice hospitality in welcoming Phoebe, and really, we are to do that with all fellow believers and all people as we're able to be a people of hospitality. I, I love the Spanish uh, phrase, mi casa es su casa, my house is your house, that conveys the same idea that, here, you're, you're welcome here, my house is your house, come on in. And we as the people of God are called to that, the church in Rome is called to that with Phoebe. It's notable just to think about that. And to think that uh, they are to do that in a way worthy of the saints. Well, what does that mean, worthy of the saints? Is Paul referring to the, all those historic heroes that you know, have paintings with halos around their heads? Is that what he's talking about? 
No, in Scripture, the word saint is the word for all believers. Um, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've, you've turned to Christ, turned away from your sin and self-effort and trusted in Christ, you are a saint. You are a set-apart one, a, a holy one, through faith, by grace alone. And that, that new reality for you uh, has an eternal impact on who you are. It certainly leads to your being transformed to become more and more holy in practice, but you are already holy. You already set apart. You belong to the Lord. So Paul uses this title of honor in many ways to honor people throughout this passage. I want you to hear that. Uh, I want you to hear Paul's heart through this, how he regards his friends, his gospel friends. He honors them. He loves them. He respects them. He speaks highly of them. And so in speaking of Phoebe, he is also speaking highly of the church. Welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. You guys are the saints. And accordingly, if, with who you are, welcome Phoebe into your church. Paul has uh, great affection for Phoebe, speaks about her, uh, not only in these ways, but he says, help her in whatever she may need from you. That's quite a re request. Help her in whatever she may need from you. This woman is, is giving, being given a high commendation, and he's asking the church to basically help her however she needs help, um, that they're to extend this to her. And in speaking of her, he says, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Uh, the word patron there, I think, is a good translation, but it actually is a word that is almost the same word as helper. Um, and so he's saying helper as she has been a great helper. Um, she has been one who's helped the church in Corinth and himself as well. The word, though, is a little more than just helper, though. It, 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 it's a title sort of word. It's a, it's a significant word, and so that's why the ESV uses patron. Uh, and this means that likely Phoebe is probably a wealthy, fairly wealthy woman, a successful woman. Uh, maybe she's married to a, a successful businessman. Maybe she is a successful businesswoman like Lydia. Uh, we don't know, but she, she's well off, and she's a deaconess in the church. And she has helped many. She's helped Paul. She's had a huge effect on this church in Corinth. Uh, we can infer from all that Paul is saying. Uh, she's been significant in, in establishing this church in Corinth and helping this church grow in her role. Um, I'm glad that this little snippet on Phoebe is here. There's a lot to learn just by looking at it. And this whole section, as we look at Paul relating to the people, it makes me think, actually, of the many Phoebes in our church, the many uh, among us God has gifted that are uh, deacon or deaconesses, so uh, in an official capacity. Paul and Heidi Parisi, Mitch Jacoby are our deacons. Um, we want to grow that office, by the way, and we're going to talk about that at the family meeting, because there are many others who may not hold the official office in our church, but are acting in, uh, and serving according to those sorts of gifts that, that are helpers and patrons, both male and female patrons of sorts. Uh, God has been really good to us as a church, and many of you serve and help like Phoebe. I hope you feel God's pleasure and your pastor's gratitude for how you have invested in this church, how you serve, how you pour out your life for the health and the mission of our church. This is here in Scripture to remind us about this truth. I think most of all to make us grateful for how God works in our church these ways. 
but also to understand the, the function of a church and what a healthy church looks like. Well, Paul continues. There's not just Phoebe here. There's a lot of names. And, and don't worry, I'm not going to take as much time in all each individual name like I have on Phoebe, because you're probably like thinking, if you're like me, okay, that was 10 minutes on Phoebe. That's three hours message. So. Um, we'll move a little more quickly. And I could take a lot more time. It's just really cool to, to watch Paul interact here. You see his affection, you see his gratitude, you see his honor that he's giving. So he goes on, uh, speaks of Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Now we've seen them elsewhere in Scripture, perhaps, you, as you read, you see them in the book of Acts. Uh, this is a couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla is how they're mentioned first, a man and a woman, a man's Aquila, Priscilla's his wife. They meet Paul in Corinth. And if you know the story, Paul was coming from, from Athens, basically, going into Corinth, and he says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he talks about he was fearful, concerned. Um, he was all alone, actually. And he met them, and they were tent makers, they were believers. And they had been kicked out of Rome because they were Jewish people, and, and the Emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. Uh, from what we know, it's because of the conflict over Christian and Jewish relationships, which is Romans talks much about that. It was a real problem in Rome, and it got to be so bad, uh, particularly among, I think, the Jews that didn't believe in Jesus and those that did, and the Gentiles, that, um, that Claudius said, that's enough, you all have to leave. And that's, so he kicked them out. And so Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Corinth, and then they helped Paul. They took him in. They welcomed Paul. And they had him work. They worked with them. They had a tent-making business, and Paul was able to be supported as well and proclaim the gospel there in Corinth. They became good friends and ministry partners, and then you'll, you read elsewhere that they were in Ephesus with Paul as well, and they're making disciples. They bring Apollos into their home and teach him more, and that's when the names shift a little bit, and from what we can tell, uh, Priscilla probably was the more gifted, mature one in the couple, uh, whether it was an availability or just a giftedness issue, she was probably did a lot of the, the teaching and, and discipleship uh, that went on, and so her name gets featured more. But um, she's a key leader. She's not a pastor. She might not even be a deaconess. She's just a mature Christian. And they, as a couple, ministered together, and they've risked their necks for Paul. Probably, uh, well, we don't know, but Paul talks about this, this trial in Asia, and Asia is the eastern part of modern-day Turkey, uh, I mean, sorry, western part of modern-day Turkey, uh, the Roman province of Asia, so not Asia, our Asia, but the, that province is what he's speaking of. They had risked their necks for Paul. They had done something for him in that trial. Maybe it was, there was a big riot, and, um, and they might have put their lives on the line to protect Paul. These are dear friends, mature believers, um, faithful friends that Paul has had. Uh, and and it's uh, here in Scripture, captured in his greetings, you see his affection, his appreciation. And it teaches us that you don't have to be an apostle or pastor or even a deacon to be a hero of the faith and a significant blessing to the church. So we're, I'm talking about offices, but don't feel like that is what maturity looks like. Growing in Christ and, and, and loving people and helping them grow is, is, uh, and being partners in the mission is tremendous in and of itself. And we see that in the life of uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Paul greets Epinatus. Uh, he's the first convert to Christ in Asia. Quite an honor. Um, and and um, he's called my beloved. Paul uses this term a lot here, my beloved. Um, 
And that's a good translation of the word. We, we don't tend to use beloved a whole lot, right? I mean, that's, it's an old word, and like you maybe call your spouse that. And if I were to say dearly beloved, it, I mean, that's nice, but it's kind of, that's old-fashioned. Um, but the idea is a dear friend. That's kind of what it is. It's, it's my dear friend, uh, beloved. But there's a lot of affection here. Now, we're going to see it later. We'll talk about the holy kiss. Uh, there's a lot of affection expressed from Paul to these people. And I think that characterizes the people of God. It characterizes gospel friends. They have affection for one another. They consider each other beloved, whether they use the term or not. And, and it's appropriate for us to be affectionate in this way. Paul goes on. He greets Mary. Uh, she's likely another Jewish believer. Um, he knows her, and she knows, he knows that she has worked hard for the Roman church, so he mentions that. There's a lot of honor going on here. The honoring of each person. So Paul knows she's worked hard, so he mentions this. We have many Marys in our church who have worked hard uh, for the, the health and life of this church. He greets Andronicus and Junia, his kinsmen, so that's their fellow Jews. Um, they're also his fellow prisoners, he mentions. Um, it's, they've shared imprisonment with him. Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably separate from his actual imprisonment, so they weren't necessarily in a jail cell with Paul. But they were also people that experienced, experienced prison. From what we can tell, the way that Paul speaks of them here, they are some sort of missionaries. They're actually called as um, well-known among the apostles or outstanding among the apostles. It can be translated either way. It's not clear whether the apostles knew them well or they themselves were considered apostles. And just so you understand, the word apostle, there's different ways it's used in Scripture. Probably three different ways it's used. There's capital A Apostle, and that's defined very clearly. Those are leaders who are designated by Christ to lead the church. They have been discipled by the risen Christ. They are authorized to basically speak with the authority of Christ. They write scripture. And they are uh, given great power for signs and wonders. Um, those are capital A Apostles, and those are limited. Basically, 12, 13 of them. Then there's the uh, next level apostle, small a apostle, that is basically a messenger, a missionary. And that's this, it's the same word that we get missionary from. That's, uh, apostle is the Greek version of missionary. And so there's a category of those that are basically going out to proclaim the gospel um, and, and are, uh, are designated so. And then apostle just also just means simply messenger. So you could, someone could be, you know, hey, could you, could you take this letter to that other church and that's how it's used as well. So Andronicus and Junior are not capital A apostles. Uh, I think the best way to understand what, from what we're reading, they are missionaries who have proclaimed the gospel. They've probably gone from city to city, proclaimed the gospel as a husband-wife team. And as a result, they've been imprisoned like Paul has. And Paul knows them. Uh, perhaps they've even partnered together. Um, and and it's, they're a husband-wife team. Um, it's great example to see in Scripture, and I'm grateful for the husband-wife teams that we have. And I think of our, some of our global partners. That's essentially what, what's going on. They are operating in different ways according to God's design, gender, of course, and so forth, but they are husband-wife teams. Grateful for that. Grateful for some new husband-wife teams among us as well. Um, Paul continues with other close friends, Ampliatus and Urbanus and Stachys. He greets Apelles, who's approved in Christ, it says. Uh, this is... Uh, he knows something about Apelles. We don't know. We don't know what it is. But probably he went through some trial, some very difficult trial, and was faithful and had grown. 
and was now serving uh, after that trial, after having gone through that. So whether he, I don't know, was persecuted or whether there was some personal trial, some trial of addressing uh, his character, something had gone on in his life and now he's approved. He's, he's someone who's been proven. And that's how trials work in our lives. They prove that there's gold within. And they remove the dross and they create people like Apelles that are proved in Christ. He's the real deal, is basically what Paul's saying. Greed Apelles, he's been through it. He's the real deal. That's what Paul means as he speaks of his friend. He goes on to greet the household of Aristobulus, his fellow kinsman Herodian, he mentions there. There's a couple places where he says the household of Aristobulus, the household of Narcissus. These are probably larger households, and actually, from what we can tell, they're fairly famous Roman people. Um, Aristobulus is likely a relative of Herod, one of the Herods, and it's the household of Aristobulus. So it's not Aristobulus himself, but his household, and that would have included everybody in the house, relatives as well as the staff, and they had slaves back then. That was common to have slaves, um, different sort of slavery than, than what we've had in America. Uh, still, we can talk about that, not, not God's will that there be slavery, but anyhow, that was practiced then, and so Paul's addressing the whole household, slaves and free, everybody. There's diversity here. And he's talking uh, to his friend, to his kinsman, his fellow Jew, Herodian. Who's, that makes sense that that in Aristobulus' household is an actual uh, relative of Herod. Uh, he also addresses the household of Narcissus. This is possibly uh, a very famous citizen who served under Emperor Claudius and was put to death under Nero. Um, and it shows the progress of the gospel in Rome. That the gospel is not only reaching regular people, not only reaching Jews and, and God-fearing Gentiles that, that maybe through this local synagogue heard about the gospel, but it's penetrating to the cultural elite as well. The gospel is doing its work, and there are people from the household of Aristobulus, Herodian himself, household of Narcissus as well, that are coming to Christ. This reminds me of what Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, uh, which he writes later on, three years later, when he's in Rome, and he's under house arrest. He writes these letters. He writes the letter to Philippians. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It's wonderful. This is the reality of the gospel. The gospel creates gospel friends from all levels of life. And the gospel is never limited by, by people's background. Yes, it's harder often for cultural elites uh, to respond to the gospel because it seems like everything's right, but the gospel is more than powerful enough to penetrate every nook and cranny of culture. Never doubt the gospel's ability to transform the cultural elite. That's what's going on here. Paul goes on in his greetings to mention other workers, like Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. He greets Rufus. Rufus is likely the son of Simon of Cyrene. Uh, do you remember Simon of Cyrene? He's the one who was made to carry Jesus' cross. Mark mentions this, Mark 15, 21. It says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark was written probably for, for the Romans as his first audience. And so that, that's why we see this connection. It's likely Rufus is the Rufus of Mark 15, 21. But notice Paul doesn't say, greet Rufus the famous. He calls him something else. Greet Rufus, his friend. Um, 
Was Rufus chosen in the Lord? And I don't think it's without purpose that Paul chose to, to call him that instead of the famous Rufus or the son, son of Simon. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, rather than highlighting that, though, he says chosen in the Lord. That's actually probably the highest term of honor that he could give to any believer. Chosen in the Lord. And just reminds us of the wonderful good news and really the, the highest honor we could, be, uh, we could receive is to be called chosen in the Lord. And if you are a believer in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, simple faith, trusting Jesus, you can know that behind all that actually is something greater than yourself, greater than your choice, greater than what you decided to do, greater than what happened to you circumstantially, greater than that is this reality that Scripture teaches us. Behind it all is God Himself having chosen us. And if you are a believer, you can know you have the title as well as Rufus, chosen in the Lord. What a, what a wonderful truth to, to stand on in our lives, to know ultimately my confidence is not in my ability to respond. Of course, that matters. But that's not where my confidence is. My confidence is where it was for Rufus we, we take that we are chosen in the Lord. The Lord himself has chosen to have mercy on us and to call us his own. And so Rufus is given this Wonderful uh, title of honor, chosen in the Lord. Paul mentions Rufus' mother, um, and he call, says to her, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Um, again, I'm repeating myself, but just here, Paul's like, just, he's overflowing with encouragement and, and, and gratefulness to people, to his gospel friends. And I think uh, it's a great example for us. And so Rufus's mother somehow had, had probably nurtured and taken care of Paul. And he had experienced her mothering uh, in his life. This is the Apostle Paul. Uh, the great Apostle Paul himself also needs nurturing and care like he received from Rufus's mother. You, you, uh, as a mom, you have gifts as a woman, I think, particularly Certainly we can all nurture, but I think particularly it's a stronger gift that God has given women, generally speaking, and you always will have opportunity to nurture. Uh, and mothering in this way in the church is so important. Coming alongside to encourage, to nurture, to help. Paul had received this from Rufus' mother, so he's happy to uh, remember this as he greets her. Paul continues to greet others. Um, he uh, He's there's others that he probably doesn't know as well. And so he probably doesn't know them enough to say something positive about them. He doesn't say anything negative about them, of course. But he, but he doesn't know. He just knows their name. Maybe he knows they're in the church. But he still wants to mention them. He still wants to bless them by mentioning them. He cares about them. And he, and he knows them, and they know that he knows them. And so he mentions them. He greets uh, Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, uh, the brothers who are with him, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. Um, and then he has a, another section at, at the end where he brings greeting from his team, and that all fits under this category of gospel friends, and he mentions uh, those who are with him in Corinth, the, uh, Erastus. Um, Erastus is the city treasurer. He's a prominent person in, Cor in Cor Corinth, and Paul's probably staying with him. Um, Quartus is another person who's there he's staying with and then the others who helped him write the letter members of his team as well uh, they, and then all the churches Paul brings greetings from all the churches that are under him to the church in Rome 
Uh, and then he says in verse 16, kind of a summary of all this, uh, an application, greet one another with a holy kiss. The holy kiss was a natural and culturally meaningful sign of uh, familial affection in that day. Uh, it was fitting. You, you kissed your family members. When you greeted them, you would kiss them. That was part of how you showed affection. In that culture, to not do that was to kind of give someone the cold shoulder. Uh, and so this is a practice done in the church because the church is the ultimate family. There is to be family-like affection. That's what Paul's getting at. Uh, in some cultures, that still holds. Um, my just my, Not the culture I grew up in, by the way. Um, I think the last time I kissed my dad was when I was five years old. Uh, we would express affection other ways, but you just didn't do kisses. And then when I married my wife, Peg, Italian family, my father-in-law asked me if I could kiss him when I greet him like his sons do. And that was a big step for me, just so you know, because that's not culturally uh, normal for me, uh, but for the often Italian families perhaps, Mediterranean families, others, that's normal. That's what Paul's getting at, though. This is a cultural, culturally appropriate way. So you're probably wondering, big question here, right? You're thinking, okay, so where is he going to go with this one? Um, I think it's about the principle. And the principle holds and must hold. Um, and so Paul says to the Roman church, greet each other with a holy kiss. He's, he's commanding them, he's exhorting them to do this. Uh, that doesn't mean, I had someone say, well, what about us? Are we going to obey scripture? I'm like, I said, jokingly, not in my church. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not going to do a holy kiss that way. Because the, the, the thing, we're going to obey scripture, so don't hear that. Um, we're going to definitely obey the scriptures. But the principle is what holds, and there's a cultural application to this. So for us culturally, um, I would suggest uh, warm hugs. That's how I think we do it culturally. That's how family members greet each other in our culture usually, warm hugs um, and handshakes. And the point is that we are called to affection with one another and expressing that affection. We're called to honor one another. We're called to be aware of the blessing that others are to us. We're called to be like Paul, to have all these things that we could and, and hope to say to others about their lives. This is what happens when the gospel impacts our lives. We, we are full of gratitude because we know that we're sinners. We don't deserve the mercy and love of God, yet he has poured out his love for us in Christ. He's given us his very son. Um, he's, he's welcomed us into the family. He's working in our lives, transforming us. And when we grasp that, it, it fills our hearts and it fills our hearts with gratitude for that work in our own lives, but also for what we see in others. It makes us more aware. I remember a friend, uh, one of the guys in our church, he came to Christ and he was sharing how the gospel changed his view of things. And he, he mentioned one of the things was winter. It had always been a dark time for him and things looked so terrible. And when he came to Christ, all of a sudden he saw beauty in winter and the trees and the snow. And, and I think that's a, a good metaphor for how we relate to each other. In Christ now, our eyes are open and we see the beauty and the goodness. We see what God's doing in others. And so we are affectionate. We honor one another like Paul does. Um, that's what's going on here. Um, and, it, and it is so meaningful. Um, I, I remember actually related to this when uh, one the first trips I made to Southern Asia, I was uh, arrived. They had lost my luggage. I had had all this trouble, almost missed my connectors, almost took a train ride into New York City instead of to the airport. I had all these things happen. It had been a very tough trip. Um, and I got there, my luggage was gone, and uh, we arrived at the airport there in the, the particular country. And it was just chaos. 
uh, it was so different. You know, you're not in Kansas anymore, sort of experience. So different. Nobody queued up. Everyone would just mob everything. There was just no order. And nobody spoke English. I don't know why. They didn't speak English. I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't even know what the signs said because a lot of them didn't say in English. Um, it was a totally different script. I just felt totally um, overwhelmed, actually. It was culture shock that was happening. Um, and what made the difference for me was when I started to meet other believers in that country. And their warmth, um, their love, their hospitality, um, their kindness, and, and relating to me. He, even though it's, for some of them we maybe had to use translators, others could speak English as well as I could. Um, but that made all the difference. And, and that happened very quickly, actually. Uh, they were at the airport to help us and met them. Even though I had all this stuff and felt so at e uh, ill at ease, um, that, that affection, that relationship, made me feel at home. And I did. I felt at home very quickly. Uh, felt at home for the rest of my time, and, and every time I go back there, it's still the same experience. That's the, that's the power of this truth. Um, when we live in this reality of, of, of gospel friendship, uh, we are like Paul, we think of others this way, and we are at home, and we experience peace and love in all these ways. So that's what Paul's doing, that's what we observe here. He's not alone, the gospel has had an effect. He has this long list of friends, and so do we. Uh, and they are a countless number ultimately. But there's not just that reality. This passage talks about gospel foes. Paul knows that there are friends, but these friends are not entirely surrounded by other friends. And so he says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul knows and celebrates gospel friendship that's here, but he also knows there's gospel foes. And, and these gospel foes are those that create obstacles and divisions contrary to the doctrine they've been taught, contrary to what Paul's been teaching in, the, in these 15 chapters. The gospel, the good news of Christ, that there is no salvation apart from Christ. That no one is righteous in and of themselves. And we need a Savior and that Savior has come. His name is Jesus. God in the flesh. He lived the righteous life we were supposed to live for us. Then offered that life on the cross to die in our place for forgiveness. And through simple faith in Him as it's always been. God has never expected you to try to establish your own righteousness. But to flee to Him for grace through faith, always. That's how God works. He's given us Jesus as the fulfillment of that. That's the, that's the good news of the gospel. Trusting in Him and what He's done in Jesus and His righteousness, His death for us, His resurrection. And then living that out. So doctrine is not just that core truth. Of course, that has to be what we focus on. But the application. Paul's been talking about application. How that reverberates in our lives. That's what Paul's talking about. And these people are living, uh, they're causing divisions, creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine They've been taught. Paul says, avoid such persons. These are people who, who are not people that are outside the church. These are people who appear to be in the church, but really are opposed to the church. Um, they are compromising doctrine. They're compromising the truth of the gospel. Paul doesn't get into the details here, but, but historically, and we see it elsewhere uh, in Paul's writings, and historically in the church, there are two camps, um, usually, there's what we call the legalists and then the libertine. Um, and, and there are two camps that, that get the gospel wrong. Um, the, the libertine says, well, you know, 
it's all about uh, God's grace, and then you can do whatever you want. Um, often a libertine, it's, all, it's about getting your, your thought right. Get your theology right in your brain and do whatever you want. That's the idea. Uh, Gnosticism is a form of that. That's basically thinking it's, you know, get the, get the thought right, and then it really doesn't matter what you do. The physical doesn't matter a whole lot. It's separating the, the, the spiritual and the physical. That's the whole libertine camp. Um, and they are abusing the gospel because the gospel actually comes to transform all of life. The truth of the gospel not only is something in our heads, but it, it touches our hearts, it touches our bodies, it touches how we live life. We, we live out in the truth of the gospel, in light of the gospel, in many ways. So it's an abuse to think otherwise. And then on the legalist side, um, the legalist says, well, the gospel isn't quite enough. I've got to do something to really make it real. And, and, and to kind of add to the gospel. And they, they forget, first, their total inability to do so. You cannot be righteous and earn God's favor on your own. And if you try to do that, apart from his grace, um, it'll only be worse. Even though it may look good in God's eyes, it doesn't. You can't do it. And also they lose sight of how complete the work of Christ is. Christ said, it is finished on the cross. He paid for your sins. He purchased your new life. He purchased a new relationship with Him. And it's through that new relationship in Christ that you, will, that you will find power to walk the truth out. It's by grace alone. So those are the two dangers that and Paul's saying, guys, watch that trend in your heart. Certainly, that's what we all need to do. But those who are basically living in that and, and not, not embracing the whole Christ and, and pursuing that and insisting on that, you need to avoid those people is what he says. So there are gospel foes, and we need to understand that. And they're out there. I, I don't think there's any in this church, just so you know. They're, all, they're gospel friends here. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with these things, to work through them together, but we are committed to submitting to the Word together. So that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. But, uh, but there are people outside of here that you need to be aware of. There are people who can be subtle, and that's part of the problem here. They, they use smooth talk and flattery to to deceive people. And they're really not interested in serving God. They're doing what suits them. They don't want to follow God. They want to do it their own way. They, they like this libertine system or they like this legalist system. It's really about themselves, not the Lord. They're not depending on the Lord. And they're using smooth talk and flattery. So be careful. And they're out there. Um, and it's, it's, it, you need to hear that. You need to hear the warning. And I see them. They're not in the neighborhood here that I know of. Um, they're not nearby, but they're there. I've watched the TikTok videos. I've visited the YouTube sites. I've read the Facebook posts. They exist, and they are dangerous. There are two simple practices that I think that keep us from these. First is what Paul's been doing for 15 chapters. Get to know the gospel. Get to know the good news of Christ. Get to understand its depths, the, the, the power of grace. Get to understand what it looks like when that grace affects us and affects our lives and changes how we relate to God, how we relate to one another, how we think of ourselves. Dig deep into Romans 1 through 15. We're going to finish this series next week, but please don't stop reading Romans 1 through 15 or 1 through 16, the whole thing. Get into it. Get to know the gospel. Get to know it well. And as you get to know the gospel well, you'll be able to tell when something's off. 
If you know Romans well, and I'd encourage you to memorize as much as you can, uh, particularly for those of us who are younger and your brain is fresh and ready to learn, memorize, memorize, memorize the, the Scriptures. Get to know that. Get to know the Word. And, and you will be able to, from that vantage point, know when something's off. It's kind of the, like the story you hear about those that are bankers and tellers and so forth. How do they know what counterfeit money is? Well, they, really, they know really well what the real thing looks like. And they can see the difference. The same thing with us. This is a really important way for us to avoid such people is by knowing the Gospel, knowing the good news ourselves. Secondly, rely on trusted sources. I have no trouble with many good resources that are out there on the internet. But God's design is not for you to make that your primary source. God's genius design is the local church. And what's the difference? What's the difference between you know, an outstanding teacher uh, online and in the local church? Well, that teacher may be more gifted in teaching. But you don't know that, gift, that teacher personally. You're not walking with that teacher in relationship and friendship. You can't probe and know what they're really like. You don't know their life. You can't necessarily ask questions. You can't interact. You can't bring your struggles. You can't say, what did you mean by that? You can't necessarily interact with those that have been impacted by that teacher's influence and example as friends and walking together. All those things are missing in that category. And so I'm not saying don't go there, but don't rely on that as your primary source. Your primary source according to Scripture should be here. Hearing the Word taught. It, it saddens me when I meet, talk to pastors who are in churches, and this is not true for us, but in churches where, where people are saying, you don't teach as well as this person online. And I know the pastor is faithful in teaching the Word. Our job as we listen to the Word is not to evaluate how good the rhetoric of the pastor is. Our job is to hear the Word taught through that pastor and encounter God in that, believe and obey, and learn to walk together. That pastor may not have great rhetorical gifts. He may not be funny like that other person or whatever it might be, but is he faithful? And is he your brother? Do you know him? Are you walking together? When we do this, we're protected. And we grow in health together. And by the way, we do that all together. It's not just about our relationship with that, that pastor. But as a whole church, we walk in these things together. That's how we avoid these people. And that's how we avoid gospel foes. One thing really quick. Sorry, I've gone long. I hope it's encouraging and helpful. Paul says something that's profound here in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He's been speaking about gospel foes when he says that. And he speaks of the God of peace. Our God, the only God, the real God, is a God of peace. He loves harmony and order. He loves mutual joy and love and truth. He's the God of peace. This is who he is, but he does something very warlike here, doesn't he? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. This alludes to Genesis chapter 3, the promise to Eve, that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And we know that's been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus crushed this Satan's head by dying for our sins and rising again. And he is effectively crushing Satan's head through his reign and through finishing his reign when he returns. But this is not wording it quite that way. It's not to 
say it denies that. It's talking about a particular aspect. It says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Where? Under your feet. Notice the where and the when. Soon. Now we know for sure that God indeed, the God of peace, will finally and fully crush Satan under the feet of Christ at Christ's return. But this is not what Paul's talking about here. It alludes to that, but he's talking about soon under your feet. He's just been talking about gospel foes. He spent 15 chapters talking about the power of the gospel. So how does God soon crush Satan under their feet? Through the gospel believed and applied by God's people. That's how the territory extends. And this is right in line with spiritual warfare, right? Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God, the the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, right? So as we believe the gospel, as we live in it, as we walk it out together, as we struggle to do that, to learn and how to do it, that is how Satan is crushed under the feet of God's people. We know the history of the Roman church. This is indeed what happened. The church grew. It went from a minuscule minority to a significant force in the culture. It transformed, really, the Roman Empire. And, and the virtues that we now know as Western culture, so many of them came from the effect of the gospel, though often unrecognized. Things like humility, respect, kindness, mercy, grace, sexual self-control, generosity, dignity of human life, care for the poor, Respect for women, equal treatment of all classes, accountability for government, a heart for universal brotherhood and peace. All these were not virtues at the time this letter was written in that culture. They were either vices or weaknesses. And as the gospel went forward, it crushed the things of Satan and transformed that whole culture even and that church. Brothers and sisters, we've been through this wonderful book taught us about the gospel and its impact. It creates gospel friends. It it keeps us from gospel foes. And it grants us gospel victory in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the good news, the gospel. The amazing good news of Christ crucified and risen and new life in you. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel friendships here. We ask you to continue to grow and add to our number more and more friends, deepen our friendship in the gospel together. Keep us from gospel foes, build us up in health, and use us as we live in the gospel, as we proclaim it to our neighbors and friends as well, and our family members. Use us to advance gospel victory, we pray. We thank you for your word, and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.